Well, open your Bibles with me to the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. We are in a series on sanctification. And in in, in the same sense, we are both set apart as holy. We are holy and we are becoming holy. God is setting us apart. And that will happen all the way until glorification. Galatians 5, and I want us all to look at the text. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures with you, uh, you should find one either in the rack right in front of you. And if there's not one there, just tap on the person's shoulder in front of you, and there's probably one in their rack, and they can hand it back to you. And if you don't own a Bible, we welcome you to take a copy of the Scriptures home with you, free. Um, Just take it home and read it. Galatians 5 contains a verse that provides a critical necessity to living a life that is pleasing to God. The practical aspect of sanctification. Now, as as Douglas J. Moo says, there isn't any one key to the Christian life. You'll hear popular preachers and seminar speakers talk about the key to Christian living. And, And Douglas J. Moo will actually say there's actually several keys. But this is going to be one of the important ones. Galatians chapter 5. Now, as I read this verse, I want you to have this question in your mind. What does God say will keep us from gratifying the desires of the flesh? Because isn't that the battle that we just came through last week? Today's the, the first day of a new week. And we've all come through a battle and we have all felt this pull, even as God's children. Here's the question. What does God say will keep us from gratifying the desires of the flesh? Because that's what we really need to know this morning. I want you to read the answer. Look at Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, so let me raise the question again. What does God say will keep us from gratifying, from fulfilling the desires of the flesh or carrying out those desires in completeness? What is it? And the answer is walk in the spirit and you won't do that. I mean, it's an amazing statement. It's almost unbelievable because we know how strong the propensity is in our own heart to fulfill the desires of the flesh. And yet here Paul's going to say, But if you walk in the Spirit, you don't have to do that. I want you to notice the last word in that verse. Look at Galatians 5, verse 16. What's the last word? What's the last word? Flesh. Okay, is that just talking about our skin? Okay, in some cases it's talking about our physical frame. But the word flesh is interesting because my skin by itself does not have desires. I I suppose when it gets sunburnt, it has has a desire for aloe, but that's not really my skin desiring it, right? It's something within me saying I need relief. So what is the flesh? Because the flesh has desires and passions, and when the desires of this thing called the flesh are fulfilled. Galatians, Paul's going to say this in Galatians, that, that the product of that, of fulfilling those desires, is the flesh's works. And he gives a 
whole list, a whole catalog, not exhaustive, but representative. So when you actually give into the desires of this thing called the flesh, what the result is are its works. And everybody has those. And natural people produce those works. Here's, here's a warning before we define then the flesh. The flesh can produce both blatant, obnoxious immoralists. And the flesh can produce respectable Pharisees. Do you understand that? And, and really, the, the danger within the church as we gather is not necessarily the blatant immoralist as much as it is providing safe haven for the resident Pharisee. And that's where we overlook. But these both spring from the flesh. So what is the flesh? If you're taking notes, just write down these verses. I'm not going to have you turn to these. But Ephesians 2 verse 3 speaks of the fact that the flesh has a will. Your flesh actually wants things and moves towards things. It has a will. Matter of fact, Ephesians 2 3 says this Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out. So we're fulfilling this, this will of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Romans 8 6 to 7 says what Ephesians just said that the flesh has a mind. It's like this living entity within you that will stay with you until this body dies. Listen to Romans 8, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, one more verse. The flesh has a will. The flesh has a mind. And the flesh, and it's going to be very important in our understanding, the flesh never gets any better. So if you're just thinking sheer willpower and discipline and diet and exercise are going to conquer your flesh, the flesh is irredeemable. Okay, let, me, let me read to you Romans 7 verse 18. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there is no good thing. It may choose to look religious. It may choose to look chaotically evil. It may choose to act respectable. It may choose to act lawless. But Romans 8 verse 7 says, The flesh does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it, listen to the word, cannot. It just can't. So, let me put that into perspective. The flesh will never feel any better next Sunday morning about waking up and gathering with God's people than it did today. There's really nothing you can do to discipline your flesh to do that. Unless it's fleshly religion and you think that somehow in your mind that gathering gains favor with God. Now, is God pleased with our gathering? Yes, but the flesh in, in two years is never going to feel any better about gathering with God's people. The flesh will never think differently about doing right. Unless there's something in it for him or her, the flesh will never, will never want to do right. Your flesh will never want to abandon comfort, move to a foreign place, and tell people about Jesus. Your flesh will always 
resist that. That doesn't mean everyone should go, but you have to understand the mindset and the will of the flesh. The flesh never wants to do that unless it reasons, you know, if I do that, people will blog about me and write books about me and highlight me. Think of the popularity I could have if but see, that's the flesh, fleshly thinking, even as it's attached to something that is good. The flesh is our unredeemable humanity. It will be with us until we receive a body like Christ's. And when does that happen? He's called the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first of his kind. When this perishable puts on what? imperishable, then we will receive a body like His which no longer has within us this principle of sin called the flesh. So that sounds really hopeless, doesn't it? I mean, Sunday morning cartoons could have provided more hope than that. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have of living a life that pleases God? What hope Does God's Word give to us for living a life that is being sanctified, that is in closer alignment with the fact that we are holy positionally? And how? where is the hope then of us becoming holy like Him? Look back at verse 16, Galatians chapter 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In verse 17, he's going to show you this, this, this polar opposites for the, for the spirit desires against your flesh and your flesh desires against the spirit. And the two are complete opposites. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. What are the consequences of this? What does this look like? We're, not, we're going to come back and explain it, but we want to know what it looks like. Because... Last week we talked about Jonathan Edwards writing his treatise of religious affections after the first great awakening started from within his own church. He asks two questions. The second question is what does true spirituality look like? How can you discern whether somebody has the Spirit of God or whether they don't? And he actually provides 24 answers. 12 that say these prove nothing at all. And 12 which he says these actually give life. They actually give proof that the Spirit of God is in you. You know what's interesting is is the 12 things he says prove nothing at all. Great affections and emotions in a worship gathering are a sign of nothing. Now, true spirituality is accompanied by deep and genuine affections, but the flesh has affections too. He says that diligence in religious duty is a sign of nothing. So so what are the signs? Matter of fact, Jonathan Edwards is going to conclude that the real sign that the Spirit of God is, is at work within you, he's actually going to bring it all down to what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. This is interesting. Back in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards pinpoints some of the very things we have equated true spirituality with. And he debunks those. And he says, you want to know that the real proof of the Holy Spirit 
at work within a person's life, the fruit of the Spirit. As you turn to Ephesians 5, I want you to look at Ephesians 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, 18 reads, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I want you to look at verse 19, and I want you to notice the verbs. These are the, these are the words that end in ing. Addressing. Look at verse 20. Or verse 19, singing. Verse 20, giving. Verse 21, submitting. These are active results of the Spirit at work within someone. Look at verse 19. Ephesians 5.19 tells me that what goes on in my heart when it is filled or controlled by the Spirit is this. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So let me ask you, is that happening inside of your person? Because the source of that is the Holy Spirit's control. That's the idea of filling. The word used here for filling isn't that, isn't that the people on this side of Highlands have a half a cup of the Holy Spirit and the people on this side have three quarters a cup of the Holy Spirit. Because that's, that's our understanding of filling. The idea for filling is actually control. And it's used as of a sail on a ship. And when wind fills it, it's not necessarily is the wind blowing hard or soft. The fact is the sail is full of the wind. And what's the result? That ship begins to move. So it's not how much of the Holy Spirit you have. Because you have all of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. But how much control does he have over you, right? So if you walk in him, you're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. So is the spirit filling you to the point of moving your life that you within your heart are singing? And a matter of fact, your singing is reflective that you are coming together and you are addressing each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Come praise and glorify our King. And we're singing that, perhaps not because it's our favorite hymn, but because Spirit-controlled people do this. Look at verse 20. I can know I'm filled with God's Spirit because of what goes on in reference to my circumstances. Giving thanks always and for everything. Now, has anything touched your life that cannot be qualified as always and for everything. And do you know that, that, that we have folks in this church who have been touched by real evil, by genuine, dark intentions of others. And the only way they can come through this and trust God and give thanks is because of something unnatural. And it's the Spirit's control in their life. It's the Spirit inside of them that is able to say, I'm going to trust in God. When a sister dies after, after a long-term struggle with cancer, Christian people through tears can say, I'm going to trust 
God because you have the Spirit of God in you that is resonating thankfulness in all circumstances. It's natural to be a critic. It's only by God's Spirit that in every circumstance a believer can give thanks. Look at verse 21. Verse 19 says what's going on in our heart. Verse 20 says what's going on in our circumstances. Verse 21, what's going on in our relationships with people? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's this mutual submission. Pride is going to have us rise up and think we have omniscience and then run or evade, but it refuses to submit to other people. By the way, this this command is given to all of us before the specific command is given to wives. This is a a mutual submission among a believing community. Now, what does that look like? When that's happening and the Spirit is controlling, what does that look like? I want you to look at verse 22. Ephesians 5.22. What's the first word? What's the first word? We're going to interact here. Wives. Wives. Okay, so if somebody is controlled by the Spirit, it's going to show up in wives a certain way. Verse 25, what's the first word? Okay, husbands. Okay, that's going to give evidence of Spirit controlling. Chapter 6, verse 1, what's the first word? Children. Chapter 6, verse 4, first word. Fathers. Verse 5. Okay, bond servants or servants. Verse 9. Masters. So where is the Holy Spirit's control or influence going to be seen? The consequences of a Spirit-controlled life are going to be most evident where? In our relationships. Within the home. Not just here, but actually as we interact with one another. And it it includes wives and husbands and children and fathers and servants and masters, or employees, and bosses, or pastors, and congregants. I mean, you're just going to walk through, and you're going to be able to actually identify people who have the Holy Spirit within them. Is that, so this is why we're going to say the flesh can produce both blatant moralists and resident Pharisees. But we're not going to simply evaluate everything by how we each look on just Sunday morning. Or what we just listened to on Sunday morning. We're actually going to look at each other's lives into the secret parts of our true life, into our homes, into our relationships. Then it will become evident if the Holy Spirit is in you. I want you to turn to Colossians 4. Just a few chapters over. If you're using a pulpit Bible, a pew Bible... Uh, I'm on page 985. Okay, so Ephesians 5:18, be filled with the Spirit, and the consequences affect relationships. Look at Colossians 4, verse 1. What's the first word? Masters. Okay, go back to Colossians 3:22. Okay, so the first word is bond servants. Good. If you have a different translation, you can just you can just call that out as well. Okay, look at uh, verse twenty-one. Fathers, 
Verse 20. Children. Verse 19. Verse 18. All the same relationships as Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Thankfulness. Look at verse 16. Okay, you're, you're teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Two different passages, all the same relationships, all the same consequences. The same thing is going on in my heart. The same evidence is coming out in all of my relationships. But in Ephesians, the, the results were the consequence of being what? Being being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. But in Colossians, the consequence stems from something different. I want you to look at verse 16. In Colossians, these relationships are different because of the consequence of something else. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do you walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, verse 16? Is it just simply subjective? I feel a certain way. Folks, if we simply are led by our feelings, how do you determine what is a feeling of your flesh, which we've already noticed it has, and what is a feeling of the Holy Spirit? So here's what we need. This is what we need to conclude this morning. And that is this, that that walking in the Spirit has to do with listening to His words. He has breathed out certain words. Right? That's what the inspiration of Scripture means. And here, keeping in step with the Spirit is listening to His speech. So, so, So here's a tendency. Well, I've got that memorized. I memorized the book of Leviticus. And that... That's kind of humorous to us, right? But actually, that was one of the first books that a Jewish young man had to memorize. Okay, it was the book of Leviticus. Okay, but, but, but what's the danger of that? Because a lot of the Jews, a lot of these Jewish young boys who are memorizing the book of Leviticus are actually totally missing the Messiah. So what they have come to conclude is that this is simply, and I don't know if they have Bibles like us, but for us, we would say black words on a white page. And see, it's not just that. That's, that's some of the danger of just saying, yeah, well, I've memorized that, or I placed third in a memorization contest with my Christian school. Those are great things. But the flesh can do that. Just like the flesh can memorize Shakespeare or Calvin and Hobbes. Right? And the flesh then can memorize any other kind of literature. So this is going to be very important. You have both the words of Christ dwelling in you richly together with the Holy Spirit controlling you. They work together. For the Word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So rather than thinking of this just as a book, think of this as living and animated 
connected in a very real way to God the Spirit. They work together. So it's not just about information. It's not just about 66 books and knowing the different genres and memorizing large portions. Those, those are good facts. It's not just about information. It's about relationship. And it's about relating with one member of the Godhead who, who has come to dwell inside of you. Let's you go back to Galatians chapter 5. Because God's Spirit takes God's Word to conform us into the image of God's Son. That's what's happening in a real relationship. And what's interesting is when the Spirit is present, when He's not grieved, when His influences are not quenched, He, he is actually prompting us against natural tendencies and Paul rightly calls this then fruit. Now it occurred to me during one of my favorite traditions. Traditions are not bad. Do we understand that? I have a tradition where almost every night I get a bowl of cereal. And my family knows some of my favorites. And this is not one of my favorites. But I couldn't help but think about this week's sermon. And I got a bowl of Fruit Loops. Somebody dropped off some some boxes of food for us, and inside were two beautiful boxes of Fruit Loops. And I hate to disappoint. I want, I want our young boys and girls to listen to me, because this, this might come as a shock. Fruit Loops are not fruit. <laughs> and what was extremely disappointing about my bowl of Fruit Loops this past week is that somebody had put Lucky Charms marshmallows in them. And, I don't, and, I, and we already threw the boxes away, so I couldn't tell if this was like a new marketing technique but it's like Fruit Loops weren't sweet enough. We have to add Lucky Charms marshmallows. And I still enjoyed them, finished the entire bowl, but Fruit Loops are not natural. Right? Somewhere off in the deepest jungles of Africa, there is no such thing as a Fruit Loop tree. Right? Where you, these, are, these are not organic. They're imitation, and they can be mechanically created. You know, sometimes our churchy mannerisms can be mechanically created i mean a fruit loop christians right oh yes fruit no it's not they taste good sometimes they're not good for you right so so when paul uses the term fruit here's what he's talking about you have a life source in you yes you were living god breathed his, his the spirit of life into adam's nostrils he became a living soul but in a very real sense now, we have been given to us the Spirit of God to live inside of us. And if that's the case, if that's true for us who, who profess to be believers, then out of that life source, off on our branches, fruit is going to grow. And you can actually, and Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. So when you get below the churchiness of it all, when you get below the, the mechanical engineered religion and you actually see them in the spheres of wives and husbands and bosses and employees and children and fathers, just look at the fruit. What is growing off the branches of your life? It's interesting. It's called fruit singular because it's the natural produce of the spirit-led life. Look at verse 22. 
but the fruit of the Spirit is. Here's the question we've been moving towards for two weeks. What is the real proof that the Spirit of God is living in any one of us? Well, if the Spirit is in you, it's going to produce this. First one, love. Because God first loved you. This is the grace of self-giving. Rather than exploiting and taking, remember just a few verses up, right? Don't defraud your neighbor, don't exploit your neighbor, but through love serve one another. And this is exactly what God did. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He what? That He gave Listen to what John says in just explicit terms. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. John's going to continue to write in 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that's, I think, why Paul puts this first on the list. You can go through a a whole checklist of things you do for God, but God says this, if the Holy Spirit is in you, the fruit that's going to naturally come out of your life is God-like love. Self-giving love. And so in Galatians 5, verse 13, look at that. Through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I believe that's why joy is next, because there is a joy in delighting in what God delights in. There is a joy in knowing that you have, in a sense, fulfilled the requirements of God. Yes, we do that in Christ, right? He he kept the law perfectly, but now as believers with the Holy Spirit in us, we can fulfill the whole law in this word, love one another. And that brings joy. We are rightly related to God and we rightly reflect God to others so that even in the most distressing of circumstances, we can, we started singing it this morning at 9 a.m., we can rejoice. Joy is not happiness. Happiness is superficial. Right? I could be really happy this afternoon about X, Y, or Z. But joy is that abiding reflection of a right relationship with God. The third one is peace. Peace that there is a restored relationship with God. But this virtue seems contrasted by Paul with the works of the flesh. Look at verse 20 to 21. Enmity the absence of peace. Strife the absence of peace. Jealousy the absence of peace. Fits of anger, the absence of peace. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, 
envy all result from the absence of peace. Love, joy, peace. And then peace is protected through the next word. Look at the next word, patience. Long-suffering towards those who aggravate, annoy, oppose, or persecute. And folks, if we're living in community, if we're living right separate from the world, but involved with the world, because we are on mission. And as you are living in community with other people, you're going to come across people like this. And what reflects God to them, what reflects Jesus Christ's grace to them, is patience. Patience refuses to yield to the flesh, the flesh's outbursts of anger and retaliation. And that moves into kindness. A kind, approachable disposition, or we might, we might call it mildness. Now, the Gospel contains numerous illustrations of this. Can you just, in your mind, um, think of any stories, any, any narratives in the Gospels that show Christ's kindness to others? Can you think of any? Okay, the widow of Nain. She was totally forgotten, except by one. Jairus' daughter who was dying. The woman caught in adultery. That's kindness. What about that little man that climbed up into a tree? What was his name? Right? Did he deserve grace? Zacchaeus? No, he put himself in the pathway of the Lord and he was shown kindness. What about Nicodemus? A Pharisee. He was shown kindness. What about the people that were casting lots for our Lord's garment? Kindness. Kindness. You know one of the great displays of the Holy Spirit living within you and living within me? It's our kindness. Kindness is not weakness. Okay? Kindness takes strength to resist the impulses of the flesh. Goodness, spiritual and moral excellence, generosity of heart and action, faithfulness, the reliability of the Christian. Uh, it could be called loyalty or fidelity. And it seems Paul had the Galatians in mind where once they were faithful and they turned on him. Look back with me real quick to Galatians 4. A very interesting account right within this letter. Galatians 4, verse 12 and he's going to call them brothers, even though they're being, they're being enchanted away from the one true gospel. Galatians 4, verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. Now remember, the Judaizers are coming in, okay? And the Judaizers are saying, no, the, evident of, the evidence of you truly being accepted by God is you're going to observe certain dietary, right, dietary restrictions, and you're going to go through certain ceremonies like circumcision. And Paul says, no, don't do that. You cannot add to the gospel. To add to the gospel is to distort and make another gospel, which he says there is no other. You have a strong man, even like Peter in Galatians 2, who gave in to the fear of the circumcision party, and he started to play the hypocrite, and many other Jews, even Barnabas, were led astray by his hypocrisy. So Paul is saying, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. In Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Look at verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So God providentially used physical illness in Paul to send him to Galatia to get the treatment he needed. And in so doing, he preached the gospel to them first. 
Verse 14. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? See, they've turned on Paul now. Where once it was a favorable season to treat Paul well, they have now turned on him because people have added to the gospel these laws. And in so doing, the same people who received him as an angel are turning on him and they're scorning him. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. Verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me, which some have interpreted as it was a bad eye infection and it was very difficult for the Galatians to listen to Paul because he had these seeping eyes. And that's the idea that they were, they, they were willing at that point in ministry to take their eyes out, which is not possible, and give them to him. He's simply showing this love they had for him at a particular season of ministry. Verse 18. Or verse 17. Sorry, keep going back. Verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. These are the Judaizers. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So Paul brings out this fruit, this aspect of the single fruit, faithfulness. The last two, gentleness which is meekness, strength under control. It's the, it's the opposite of violence and anger in word or action. And then the last, self-control. This is how you relate to yourself. Proverbs 25:28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In those days, that was your defense. A man lacking self-control is a compromised man. You see, patience is not weakness, but strength. Restraint is not cowardly, but wise. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and self-control. So let me ask you, is that the fruit that hangs off the branches of your life? So you're wondering... Sometimes I struggle with the assurance of my salvation. Sometimes I wonder if the Spirit of God is even in me. Okay, well then just do a quick self-evaluation and be your own fruit inspector. When the impulses of the flesh press, is there another prompting within you that presses back? Known as the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 17, Galatians 5. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit... The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. They're like polar opposites. So if you take a journey to the South Pole, you by default are moving away from the North Pole. A journey to one is a journey away from the other. That's what the, the flesh and the Spirit are doing inside of your heart. By way of conclusion, three different terms. Look at Galatians 5 verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. That's the normal term for walking. 
We're going to dismiss here in about 10 minutes, and you're going to make a decision if you still have the ability to stand up on your own, and you're going to walk out or over to the coffee or somewhere. Okay, that's the term for walk. It's a deliberate choice to move a certain direction. There's another word. Look at verse 18. Another expression parallel to walking is being led of the Spirit. Use the shepherd, a shepherd leading sheep, or the wind driving a ship, or soldiers leading a prisoner. It's that passive. The Holy Spirit is passively bringing you along. So you deliberately get up and walk and follow Him. But there's another word. Look at verse 25. And some of your translations will say walk again, but it's actually a totally different Greek word, and it means to keep in step with the Spirit. So whereas the one is a deliberate choice, a learned behavior, you're going to get up out of your seat and you're going to deliberately walk. You have this passive leading as a shepherd with sheep leading them along. But verse 25 uses a totally different word and it means to advance in line or to keep pace with. Now some of our men hiked the incline yesterday. And some other men joined them and could not keep in pace with them. No names are given. Okay, so, and some, some of you others have done the incline and your younger boys kind of outpaced you. Okay, so, so when the Spirit is leading and we get up and deliberately walk, there are these two polar opposites and we are going to keep in pace with the Spirit. The Spirit will not lead you to gossip. He just won't. That is a work of the flesh. At the point you go that to that pole, you are no longer walking in the Spirit. The Spirit will lead you and prompt you to confront it and avoid it. The Spirit will not lead you to exploit and steal. He won't. He just doesn't. To exploit people or to exploit things. But He will influence you to give. Self-giving. The Spirit will not lead you to be unkind. He just won't. But the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness and kindness. Are you keeping in pace with the Spirit? And one of one of the Christian graces, I believe, is to recognize God's grace in other people's lives. Usually we end by this strong exhortation, which I just did, but I also want to end with this. As I live life with you, as I'm in your homes, as you're in my home, I have seen God's grace in you. I have seen your faithfulness. I have seen your gentleness. I have experienced your kindness. I have seen goodness. And I want to rejoice in God and how He is at work in many of your lives. But let us walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, and keep in pace with the Spirit. Where that has not been the case, as we close in singing, would you turn your heart back to Him? Would you return to Him and say, God, I will keep in pace with your Holy Spirit?